All right. Well, it's Palm Sunday, which marks the beginning of what is known as Passion Week. Passion, like Sheila explained to the children about Good Friday, it may seem kind of awkward, maybe even silly, perhaps, to think about how the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry could be called or even referred to as Passion Week. But the word passion, as we know it, was different. The word passion really means to suffer. And Jesus, indeed, would suffer this week, as we have then the last week of his earthly ministry. And it begins when we think about Palm Sunday. In this particular week, we know. If you know the scriptures, you probably heard it before, we know this particular week, Jesus will have many different moments with his disciples. He'll have the Last Supper. But in his own life, of course, he'll be captured, he'll be beaten, he'll be flogged, he'll be mocked, ridiculed, he'll be crucified. Altogether, this particular week is a highly significant moment for Christians. I suggest to you this particular week that we're marching into, as we think about the Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, which we'll read from today in Matthew 21, even into next Sunday with Easter, this is the most significant week, even more than Christmas for a Christian. I mean, yes, we can celebrate the birth of the king on Christmas, but this is when our Lord, when Jesus defeated death and had risen, the resurrection that we celebrate next Sunday is an integral part of our Christianity. It's what sets us apart from all other forms of religion. So yes, this is a significant week for Christians. For a Jew, it would just mean it's the beginning of the Passover. But this is a highly significant, very meaningful week for all of us as believers, as Christians. And it begins with something called on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry, you probably heard the text before. You may have heard it as many times as I've preached it. But it all begins with a moment that is like any other moment in the life of Jesus while he was here on earth. It's a moment in which he receives the praise and the honor the prestige. I mean, people shout Hosanna, which means Lord save us. They, they, they lay down palm branches, they wave the palm branches, they lay down their cloaks. He, if you will, this week gets the royal treatment that he should always receive. In the text we look at today about the triumphal entry is read then, as we look at it today, is read like, well, like Jesus seeks this attention. Like he's welcoming this particular moment which is a highly unusual moment in the life that we know of our Lord. I mean, if you will, it's a complete 180-degree turnaround for what we know about his normal character. Just what is the normal character, the demeanor, the behavior, the trait of our Lord, typically through the ministry we know of him? It is of humility. It is of humbleness. In fact, the world has never seen a more humble person than Jesus Christ. But not 
this time, not on Palm Sunday. It was much different. It's like he wants to receive this moment of attention that he should always get, the glory, the praise, the honor, almost like he's seeking it. So let us think about that and ask why. Why Why does Jesus, if this is happening, as we can read this in the text, why is Jesus now taking this opportunity, this particular moment, to break his pattern of humbleness? Why now? What possible reason exists for Jesus to act out of character? Well, that's what we have to learn and discuss today as we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Stand with me, if you will. And if you're able to, to Matthew chapter 21, all four of the Gospels record a triumphal entry. We're reading today from Matthew. In chapter 21, it is 11 verses. Matthew writes, and he says this regarding Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. Verse 1, chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Verse 4 says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Well, verse 6 says, Then the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And we entered Jerusalem. The whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Father, Lord, we thank you for the reading of the word today, Lord, and we just want for a blessing to be upon it, Lord, and for us then to look upon the text, a text, Lord, a scripture that we're very familiar with. And we ask, Lord, that you'll reveal things to us that maybe we have not seen before, to direct us and to maybe why on this particular moment, why this occasion in the humble life that Jesus lived, that maybe he sought praise. Jesus, you always could receive praise. At this moment, you received it. We pray, Lord, that we would understand this text, that you'll lead us and guide us and direct us for application and meaning and understanding today. We allow your spirit to lead and direct and to reign here today. Lord, let us be recipients of what you want us to have here today in regard to this message. So thank you in advance for what shall happen here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
Well, allow me then to ask the questions one more time as we go back to the text and begin to dissect it just a little bit to maybe see what's happening here deeper and further into the text. Again, the questions that we're entertaining here this morning is why does Jesus break his pattern of the life that he lived, of being humble? I mean, why does it happen now? What possible reason exists for Jesus to act out of character as we know how he lived. Now, the answer to those particular questions pertaining to why is given within these 11 verses. In fact, the text reveals what I can see two reasons why Jesus now chooses this moment to act out of character. Two reasons why Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and then receives, and maybe seeks out the praise that he should always receive. And the two reasons I suggest to you are this. Number one, to simply fulfill the prophecy. The prophecy was written and spoken in Zechariah. We'll refer to it a bit later, but he does it first and foremost to fulfill the prophecy. And secondly, he does it to announce the arrival of the Messiah. He wants to announce the Messiah has truly arrived. Those two reasons, he receives recognition so that the world may know the Messiah is here. But let's go back to the first and expand a little further. Again, the first reason that maybe Jesus seeks this opportunity to receive the honor and praise that he should deserve all the time is to fulfill the prophecy spoken in Zechariah. We go back to the text and look at the very beginning and notice this, if you will. In verses 1 through 3, notice that Jesus directs the entire moment. He directs two of his disciples. Now, notice in the text, it does not tell us the name of these two disciples that Jesus asked to go to Bethany. Now, a lot of people sometimes are curious, and they begin to reason, mostly perhaps because Luke, a bit later in his gospel, during Passion Week, we'll talk about the Lord's Supper. And during that moment, Luke takes an opportunity among all the gospel writers to tell us that when the Passover meal was prepared, Jesus directed Peter and John. So a lot of people gather then, maybe even conclude, that maybe it's Peter and John here, these two disciples, as being sent into Bethany to be able to get the colt. And it's bold. His donkey. But that's conjecture. I mean, there's really no evidence to suggest it was Peter and John. But if you're a curious mind, that might relieve you a little bit about who are these two disciples. But it's not mentioned, so I suggest to you it's not really important. There's two unnamed disciples that go into the village. Jesus directs them, he sends them, they go into the village, and they find a colt. A donkey and the colt, and they bring them. Now notice Jesus also tells them in these first three verses what they're going to encounter when they go into the village, and then what they will be asked. So then notice, Will, that Jesus orchestrating this particular moment. He has the two unnamed disciples. He tells them to go into town to find the mother donkey and the colt. And it happens just exactly as Jesus said it would happen. But then notice as they go into town, he told them, someone may ask you what you're doing. And sure enough, 
some nearby bystanders, owners, if you perhaps, of the colt and the donkey, said, what are you doing? Now, notice in these verses, Matthew doesn't record the interrogation by those bystanders, by the owners of these animals. But Luke and Mark both record it. In fact, in Luke chapter 19, in verse 33 and 34, Luke writes that as the two unnamed disciples were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? Their answer, the Lord has need of it. So observe that the disciples answered to the owner's questions seemed to completely satisfy them. And so the two unnamed disciples take the colt and head back to Jesus. I say all of that to bring it back to your attention because this is the prelude to the triumphal entry. It's the prelude to the moment Jesus makes a public display of recognition. Now notice the text clearly tells us this is the occasion. It clearly tells us. You don't have to really kind of have a, a, a seminary degree of any kind to know that Jesus just simply tells the disciples, directs two of them, to go into the city, to go into the village. It tells them exactly what they're going to encounter. And it works out to be precisely the case. It's exact. I mean, do you see that in the text? It is exactly as he said it would occur, as he said it would happen. So I think about that, and I think this further. I mean, let's just take a quick time out here and begin to analyze what's really happening. Because is Jesus, did he prearrange this entire account? I mean, what's going on here? Did, did the owner of the mother donkey then of the cult have some sort of angelic revelation given to them of the plan as it began to unfold? I mean, was the was the man merely that owned the donkey and the coat? Just, was he merely just a follower of Jesus and understood the disciples' answer when he asked them, what are you doing? Was he just merely a follower and understood, knew the code word that the Lord has need of it, and he clearly knew what that meant, and it gave to them exactly what they wanted? Those kind of questions we can ask toward the text is a bit intriguing and certainly thought-provoking. But we're not told the answer to any of those particular questions. What we are told in verses 6 and 7 is what Jesus told the disciples to expect and to do was precisely fulfilled. Every detail was exact. It's easy to see that's occurring in the text. So my next question is, I'm processing this, and maybe you are too, is what, if anything, does that even mean? Well, it means that this moment was divine. It was providential. It was orchestrated by a superior power to fulfill the prophecy of a coming king. It was not by accident, that the disciples found the mother donkey and his colt tied up where Jesus told them they could find it. It was not by accident the owner questioned the disciples. It was not by accident, it was no coincidence, that the owner understood the Lord needing the colt and then let it go. 
It was a divine moment. In fact, it was, if it is possible, even more than a divine moment. If it's even possible, it could be more of a divine moment. It's only that it could be that it's fulfilling the prophecy that had been written in the Old Testament. Look with me again at verses 4 and 5. It said, this took all place, it took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. That prophet was Zechariah. And it took place to fulfill what was spoken by Zechariah. And he paraphrases what we're going to read later in Zechariah. He says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. It was to fulfill the prophecy. Jesus takes this moment in all of his ministry to maybe receive, direct the disciples to completely, totally fulfill the prophecy that had been written in reference to the coming of a king. He is the king. Warren Worsby says this, the prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem and what we traditionally call Palm Sunday. And the event is recorded all for the Gospels. He says this further then, listen. This is the only public demonstration Jesus allowed during his ministry. And he did it to fulfill Scripture. The coming of God's Son to this earth was not heaven's plan B or a hasty decision by the Father after our first parents sinned. The plan of redemption was settled in eternity before creation. The coming of the Lamb was decided before the foundation of the world as referred to in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. And Worsby is correct. And for that matter, he states that this triumphal entry that we're dissecting now in the book of Matthew is sure enough recorded in all for the Gospels. But, Matthew's gospel. The reason we select Matthew's gospel is because Matthew's the only one to quote the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah. It happens to be in the ninth chapter and the ninth verse. You can look at Matthew 21, verse 5, and then hear what I'm about to say in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. They're similar, very similar, almost verbatim. Zechariah wrote, Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah. You say, okay, well, who is Zechariah? Well, he is a prophet that lived 500 years before this event occurred, before this moment. Zechariah is often labeled as a minor prophet, one of which is the 12 in the Bible. But his prophecies of Zechariah are anything but minor. In fact, we could say the prophecies of Zechariah, although we may not talk about him a lot, Zechariah, his prophecies are of major importance. He might have been called a minor prophet, but that is only in length to his record that he makes of the prophecy. But his prophecy is of major importance. The New Testament alone alludes to Zechariah's prophecies or quotes them directly 
over 80 times in the New Testament. And arguably then of all Zechariah's prophecies, this one is the most famous as it calls for the people of Jerusalem to rejoice in the future of their and my and your coming king. Who is the coming king of which Zechariah foretells? It is only Jesus. Only Jesus the king. Jesus Christ the king. Zechariah tells us in advance this shall happen. But let us put ourselves in the crowd. Imagine you are there. You are now in Jerusalem at the entry that is about to happen as Jesus is coming in. You're there in the crowd for this particular moment. Think about it. Put yourself there in the situation. And as we're in that particular moment, let us also realize that we're, we're smart believers. So we know what the Scripture is telling us. We, we know that Zechariah has told us that this day, he wrote 500 years ago, we're knowledgeable that, that this day would happen in which the king would ride in on a coat. I mean, even further, we're so familiar with Zechariah and his prophecy, we know that even verse 10 said further that he would come into Jerusalem and that he would speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. We know all that about Zechariah and what is to come. But in our knowledge, I mean, we, we, we know this is going to happen, so in our knowledge, we, in, we can greatly, with joy, anticipate this day. I mean, we see it unfolding, we see it happening, we can rejoice. But simultaneously, we might just feel a little disappointed. So why, why would we know this is what we should be looking forward to and we can be rejoicing and seeing it begin to unfold but then have a little bit of a mixture of disappointment at the same time? Why? Why will we have a bit of a mixture of joy and disappointment? Because if we're truly putting ourselves in that day and time and situation, in that moment, in the crowd, then we really are waiting for our king, the one we've been waiting for for so long. We're really waiting for our king to come in proud and tall and conquering. Yeah, we would much rather have our king to ride in on a stallion or in a chariot with people shouting and bowing the knee. Much like it would then when we knew the scriptures because we're believers, we know the scriptures, we know the what it tells us, we, we think, it, surely it should have been something like what would have happened with Joseph when Pharaoh made him second in all the land of Egypt. I mean, should it be something like what happened with Joseph? Do you remember what happened with Joseph when Pharaoh pronounced him as second only to him throughout the land? Here's the entrance of, jo of Joseph. Pharaoh, in Genesis 41, took his signet ring from his hand, he put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck and made him ride in his chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. I mean, this is just Joseph as he'd been second all the land of Egypt. And the people shouting out, hey, bow the knee. Here comes Joseph, second only land to Pharaoh. 
I mean, that leads me to think that if it was this way for Joseph and the way he would pronounce as being second to Pharaoh, then surely Jesus, the king, should be presented similarly, right? But no, it doesn't happen that way. That wasn't the prophecy. The prophecy was that Jesus would ride in on a colt, not a stallion, not a chariot. But it seems to be so wrong when we think about it. I mean, Jesus deserves so much more, doesn't he? Than just riding in on a colt of a donkey? I mean, yes, we've talked about how in this moment he's receiving royal treatment. I mean, a moment in which he receives the honor that he truly deserves. It's a moment in which he receives attention, the accolades. A moment in which he's maybe seemingly inviting it and acting out of character, welcoming it. A moment when he seems to maybe break his pattern of humbleness. But it just still seems wrong. I mean, shouldn't he be riding in to Jerusalem? as the mighty sovereign king that he is in public display? Just think about the way that people arrive today that in, in their culture today. Think about the president. Whatever you may think about former or current presidents, think about the way in which they arrive. There's usually a large amount of crowd to welcome them. Recently, they've had masks on, of course, or some have. There's dignitaries present. There's maybe even a band playing as he arrives on Air Force One. It's the same way, really, for the Pope. For that matter, you think about the athletes and entertainers that arrive on a certain occasion. I mean, there's the red carpet rolled out. There's a crowd the paparazzi's all about, making a big deal about their arrival. Or maybe even that jolly big red guy called Santa Claus. Think about the way he arrives. A big, red, shiny fire truck blurring the siren. People shouting, recognizing, oh, there's Santa, Santa, go crazy. The typical way which people arrive today is with a lot amount of fanfare, extravagance, and luxury. Can you imagine anybody you'd know? Can you imagine the president? Can you imagine the pope? Any athlete entertainer arriving in on a colt of a donkey? It just doesn't happen. So why does Jesus arrive in such an uncustomary, unusual fashion for a king? It's because he fulfills prophecy. Yeah, he's going to receive some royal treatment. And it appears as though he is breaking the character he has of humility. But that's actually maybe how it looks on the surface. I mean, he is still the personification of humbleness as he chooses to fulfill the prophecy exact and ride into Jerusalem on the pole of a donkey. Yeah, he might be receiving some accolades. Might even be in welcoming it, but he is completely and totally fulfilling the prophecy. But there is another reason Jesus rides into Jerusalem at this moment. 
with the shouts of Hosanna, the palm branches being laid down, the cloaks before him. What is the other reason? It is this. To announce that the Messiah had arrived. He's taking a moment clearly for people to know the Messiah has indeed arrived. It is today, upon this moment, right into Jerusalem, make everybody aware, I am the Messiah. I am the one who was prophesied to come. I am the king. He doesn't say the words, but the, the, the things happening, unfolding, clearly tells us this is the king, the Messiah, the chosen one, the savior of the world. It is completely and totally accurate to state that upon the birth of Jesus, the world was never the same. It's one of the miracles of Christmas. Upon the birth of Jesus, the world has never been the same. But likewise, it is always accurate also to state that upon this moment, Palm Sunday, the trample entry, the world was changed once again. Because at this moment, it completely announced for everyone that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, had truly arrived. He had arrived. Look again at the text in verses 8 through 11. I mean, interestingly, as you go back and look at the text in 8 through 11, it is the response of the crowd as Jesus makes his entry into Jerusalem. I mean, those you can see in verses 8 and 9 that seemingly know that Jesus is the king, anticipated this very day of the Messiah arriving, they, yes, give him the royal treatment. It's the shouts of Hosanna, the waving of the palm branches, are laying them down before him. Maybe they're even bowing to knee. Text doesn't say that, not trying to add to it, but picture if you're there, would you not bow before the king? So perhaps it's happening. Is an entire scene fit truly for a king except for the donkey as he rides into Jerusalem. But then look again at verse 10. I mean, the people that know are recognizing the king, but then look at verse 10 because those who don't know, well, they seem puzzled. Notice in verse 10, the whole city was stirred up and they say, who is this? They can see something different is happening as they ride into Jerusalem. They don't have a clue, I guess. They're not knowledgeable of the scriptures like we are. They're not great believers like we are. So they're asking, well, who is this? But then note the answer. Then the crowd gives the curious onlooker. They said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They say, who is this? They the crowd answers, this is the prophet Jesus. Now you're thinking, wait a minute, wait, whoa, wait. This is the king. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. They call him a prophet? Did they get it wrong? I mean, this is the prophet Jesus? Well, again, they're knowledgeable of the scriptures because in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 15, it said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So perhaps some way they connect Jesus to a prophet. Many today still make that same mistake, simply calling him like a prophet. Yeah, he in some way he might have been like Moses, but look, he was so much more, right? 
I mean, he knew the scriptures. He knew the prophecy. This moment is unfolding. So yeah, in some sense, he might be like a prophet, but he's so much more than the prophet or any prophet. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the long-awaited King who, as Matthew tells us earlier in his gospel, in chapter 1, verse 21, that came to save his people from their sins. A couple of verses later, Matthew would write how we need to call his name Emmanuel because he says God's with us. Emmanuel meaning God with us. So here it is, God in human form, now riding on the donkey. Yeah, <laughs> prophet? They call him a prophet? But he's so much more than a prophet. So notice how I highlight that this is Jesus. He's the Son of God, the only Son of the Most High God. This is Jesus. The crowd looking around saying, who is this? This is a highly unusual moment for somebody to be riding in the donkey. They would expect a king, a true king, to ride in something other than a donkey. So who is this? And the crowd is right that they say, this is Jesus. The Messiah, the Savior of the world. He's riding in on a lowly colt into Jerusalem. Maybe even as we know Jesus about him, acting a little out of character, welcoming the attention, his praises, honor, the glory. But make no mistake, make no doubt, this is the Lord. This is the King. This is the Messiah. The moment happens to announce the arrival of the Savior, the Messiah. That's Jesus. Just like the song tells us. Jesus Messiah. It's the name above all names, which every knee shall, if it hasn't, will bow. Paul refers to it in Philippians chapter 2. Again, verse 9, he says that Jesus is the name that is above every name. Verse 10, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In verse 11, that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is Jesus. The onlookers are curious. The crowd begins to tell them who it is. It's the king writing to make his time be known as the savior of the world. It was an announcement to all the world to recognize that the Messiah had arrived. He had come. Do you see that's what the scripture reveals? Can you picture the moment beginning to unfold? Can you see the arrival of the king? I, mean, I truly hope that you can begin to see through the black and white written in your scripture, maybe even a little red mixed in with the words of our Lord, because this is no doubt the arrival of the Savior. And I truly hope you can picture it. But as much as I hope you can picture it, I hope you truly know him. Jesus is pronounced as Messiah, the Savior. And I hope you see it, and I hope you know him, because he is coming back. 
Jesus the King is coming back once again. But this next time he returns, it's promised that he shall, the next time he returns, he will be making his entry much differently. There will be no cult of a donkey. The next arrival will be loudly pronounced to the entire world as he rides in on the great white horse, riding tall and faithful and true and conquering as judge. Revelation 19.11, John writes, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. The king will ride again. Make no mistake. But he will not ride in as he did before. He will ride in. The world will know it. The world will be changed again forever. The triumphal entry, I submit to you, is a moment that changed the world. It changed us as Christians, as believers. It announced truly the, 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 the coming of the Messiah. But there will be another time in which that major announcement will be made in great, spectacular fashion. And that again, that moment, would change the world again forever. And here's the thing then that we need to recognize. As that moment and as this moment changed the world, when you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it changes every one of us at that precise moment. If you've never had a change in any of your behavior, any part of your life, then we have to consider, have we truly accepted Jesus Christ? Because it should radically change everything about us. Who we are, who we stand for, what we accept. Jesus Christ in our lives changes everything. He changed the entire world. And if he can change the entire world forever, then he can truly change our lives. And I hope that change has occurred in your life. The Messiah has arrived. It's called Palm Sunday. It was a time where people, if they did not, they could prepare for the king and accept. That same opportunity presents itself here today. Father, Lord, thank you for this message that we have, the familiar text, Lord, that we have before us as we reflect upon this great entry of our Lord into Jerusalem. I pray for us, Lord, as a group of believers, as faithful as we are, Lord, to recognize that we have the Savior to come into our lives and can change everything about us. So if there's one thing today, Lord, that at the beginning we'll recognize now that maybe we haven't done to change our attitude behavior to reflect and honor and praise and glorify Jesus, let's make that change out here right now. Because there should be change in our behavior, our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions. It should be evident to people. I pray, Lord, our change that we've had in our lives will be so evident to people, so much radically different, that they would dare come up to us this week and say, what is different about you? And we could then give them what they need to know about how their life can be changed. Well, I'm thankful that you changed my life. I'm thankful, Lord, for the change you've given to me. 
Let us all recognize, Lord, that you are and should be first. You should receive the honor. You should receive the glory. You should receive the praise. Let us give that to you today. Can't even imagine the week. Can only read about the week in which you had so many years ago, in which you sacrificed yourself completely for mankind. Let's honor that. Let's treasure that. And let's reflect that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all you do and for what you did. It's in your name we pray. Amen.